0: So I'm, I'm a little nervous to preach this morning because uh, my wife and I actually had a little bit of a fight last night, so I'm kind of hyped up about it. She we were kind of going back and forth, you know how you do when you're married. And she looked at me and she got so frustrated and she said, she said, I need you just to stop being a flamingo. And I, I just couldn't believe she said that to me. And I looked at her and I, I said, fine, babe, and I put my foot down. That's a good joke. That's a, that's a really good joke. I've been hanging on to that for months, waiting for the right opportunity. Uh, to get to share something that absurd with you. Um, The the challenge with with anything is when you start something new, when you start something you haven't done before, it feels so intimidating. And sometimes as adults, we forget how scary the world is when you're little, how big the world is when you're little. Um, I remember learning how to swim. Does anybody remember that experience? So for me, learning how to swim had everything to do with trying to get in the deep end of the pool with the girls. So I learned to swim much later in life. I was 12, 13 years old when I finally learned how to swim. And I really taught myself how to swim. And I still swim like that. I look like somebody who's in pain a little bit. Um, I look like somebody that's struggling. And that's because I am. I am a terrible swimmer. But I don't want my kids to have that experience. So they've been in swimming lessons, we've been working them uh, to make sure that they know how to swim, so that they're there if they feel confident in the water. Um, but there's this moment that every kid has when they come up to the edge of the pool and you're saying, okay, now jump in. Now jump to me. And you can see some kids, no fear. They just, they just go for it. They just jump right off the edge of the pool. But a lot of kids, they're like, oh, 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 wait, just wait a second. Just wait a second. Or you get this one, my favorite. Go first. I'm, I'm already in the water it's like okay now now your turn now your turn and kids will say they'll say wait just wait just wait what's gonna change the water gonna get more less like what is what do you think is gonna change if we wait but yet so many of us we get hung up on something we want to just wait to see what could happen to see what could happen and the truth is when we think about it what's your next step most of us know already what our next step is. We know what that is. We may not not feel ready to do it. We may not feel confident that it's our next step, but most of us know what our next step is, whether that's our next step personally, whether that's our next step professionally, whether that's a next step in a relationship, most of us know what that looks like and um, we can kind of feel that we know that hey it's probably time that I put my two weeks in it's probably time that my side hustle becomes my job it's probably time for me to make that jump um, I'm actually getting ready to go visit a buddy of mine who's been ready to make that jump for almost two years and is now getting ready to do it um, he's jumping full-time had the same job for 20 plus years and he's 42 so he's had the same job for 20 years and he's getting ready to jump into this new thing and it's scary to do that. Um, It's scary to jump into a new relationship. It's scary to jump in uh, to a new set of responsibilities. Heck, it's even scary to go to church for the first time. Um, If you've not been a part of a church community, it's intimidating to walk into the building, to look around. Some of you, you are crazy extroverts, and this is just no big deal for you. You feel great about it. You love walking into a room full of people you don't know. It's friends to meet. But for the rest of us that aren't weird, it's hard it just takes a little bit of, inti- a little bit of intention. Um, it is difficult. Like, I generally have a good time anytime I go to a, a group or to an event, to anything like that. But I have to psych myself up because I, I'm just enough of an introvert that I don't, I don't really like it. It just feels too much, um, it just feels intimidating. And when it comes to things that we know we need to do, in particular when it comes to things that are hard to do, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did that. Uh, sometimes we hang on to those apologies for months and sometimes years. Sometimes it's just calling and just saying, hey, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I made a phone call. One of my best friends in college died early on after school, had a heart condition, went home one night from work, laid down in his bed, and just never woke up. That was just, uh, that's when, then Seth just passed. And for 10 years, I thought about how much I missed him. And I knew that I needed to call his parents. I knew that I needed to call his parents and say something, just to say something, just to let them know that somebody else in the world still remembered their son. But I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I just could not do it. And so this morning, what I want to do is want to talk about why it is we get hung up in that and how we can respond to that. And so if you've got your Bibles this morning, if you've got your apps, you can open up. We're going to be in Nehemiah, the beginning of the, part of ne- the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 and 2. So that's an Old Testament book, so it's, it's about halfway back in your Bible, give or take. Um, and we're going to be kind of spending some time there. So you can go ahead and open up if you would like. So Nehemiah, it, the book of Nehemiah is about the life of Nehemiah. Just pretty, pretty clever naming strategy there they had. Um, and Nehemiah is growing up in exile. Um, he's growing up not in Israel. And what happened is... Israel was conquered and people were taken away into slavery. And when people were taken away, they weren't, you know, when we think of slavery, we often think of it just as terms of menial labor. We kind of think of it as, you know, people who made bricks, people who picked cotton, people who picked tomatoes, um, people who just do this kind of low end work that's hard, that takes a lot of time. Um, But that's not really in the ancient world necessarily how slavery is. You would have uh, doctors and teachers, they would be slaves. Um, Sometimes you'd even have the household managers be slaves, Um, and they would be controlled by those in power. They'd be controlled by those in power, but they would live in kind of this aristocratic life. And part of that was to try to force conquered people to assimilate into a new culture, to assimilate into a new kingdom. If you think about it from their perspective as as a king, if you're going to go and take over a land, the one thing you don't want to do is leave all the people who were in charge in charge, you can scoop all those people off, everybody who made decisions, who ran businesses, if you can just take all those people back with you, then you can can kinda control a new land. You just send some of your people in and you get to control what's happening. And so Nehemiah is growing up in exile and he actually has a pretty good job. He is a cup bearer, which is not really a job we necessarily have now, but it's almost like being like a high level executive assistant. Like, you get to be there, you get to help manage the, the king's affairs, you get to taste all of the king's food, which is one of the upsides and downsides of the job. Make sure the king doesn't get poisoned, you're going to die first. Uh, but you also get to eat the best food. So it's kind of a win-win, um, if you really think about it. And that's what Nehemiah is doing, is he's living in that position. And it starts off in Nehemiah chapter 1, um, in starting in verse 4, it says um, that, that the words came to Nehemiah that the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins and that its walls were not rebuilt. And for us, we hear that and we don't, we're like, oh, okay, the city didn't have its walls. But in that culture, in that context, that is fundamental to what makes a city a city. You gotta have walls. You've got to be able to protect the people inside the city. Uh, You've got to be able to kind of delineate where the city begins and where the rest of the town ends. I mean, so walls were fundamentally part of the city. Um, The closest analogy I could think of in the modern world is is not having running water. Like, hey, come move to our city, but just for the record, you're going to have to drill your own well. We don't really have water here. You're just going to have to deal with that yourself. You're going to have to provide your own electricity. You're going to have to sort that one out for yourself. Um, You know, none of us would want that for the most part. We wouldn't say like, hey, I would love to move to Austin, Texas where we don't have water, we don't have electricity, we don't have the internet. You got to sort all that out for yourself. Um, That just wouldn't work. Cities don't grow without the infrastructure. And so when he hears that the walls are missing, he knows that the city isn't really thriving. And it says in verse four, it says this: As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. He says, I, "And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven." Nehemiah is heartbroken, and to be honest, it's a little surprising. Nehemiah is—it's been almost over a hundred years since the walls were torn down. Nehemiah was never alive when the walls were put up, and so he is hearing this. And he seems to be surprised by it. He seems to have his heart broken by it. But there has been now, at that point, three groups, three waves of people going back to the city of Jerusalem, and yet the walls still aren't there. And he's heartbroken. And he responds by praying and fasting. And fasting is this really interesting idea, this idea of taking something that's good and giving it up for a period of time. It's really this idea of taking taking what's ultimate, what's the most important, and moving it up instead of what's just urgent or what's just in front of you. Because sometimes the things that happen day to day can become more important than the things that really matter, that really have an impact. Um, Especially as an adult, you have experienced this, that the tyranny of what do I have for dinner? I mean, that is the worst conversation as a married couple, as a parent, even as a single person. What do I have for dinner? It's like, again? Oh my gosh. My kids will come and they'll say, Dad, what are we having for dinner tonight? I'm like, listen, we had dinner. We've had dinner for like 30 days in a row. Do we need dinner again tonight? Are you kidding me? What is your all's deal? And it's, what fasting does is it takes a pause. And it's not saying that you don't get to do that. But it's saying that isn't what's most important. Instead, it's these things over here, these ultimate things, the things of God. And it's easy for us to fall into that place. I heard a story once of a, a, a company that was contracted to come in and to clean the elevators at this big facility. And they come in, and there's this bank of six elevators down each side. It's a 15-story building, and they they're contract out to do it, and it's six days in. So they've been there now. They're, they're back on the next Monday back in there. And the, the manager of the hospital comes in, he says to the facility manager, says, what is taking so long? Like, why aren't you guys doing this? And the guy says, listen, it's a big job. There's, there's six elevators on every floor, and they're not even always there. Again, that's a terrible joke. Uh, but it's that thing of like, it's easy for us to get caught up, caught up in the big pieces, caught up in the things that feel urgent, but really aren't. And so what Nehemiah does as he postures himself with his broken heart for what he sees. With his broken heart for what he sees. And he says this in verse 6, I confess the sins of the Israelites, including myself, and my father's family have committed against you. Nehemiah is lumping himself in with this mess. He isn't blaming everybody else. He isn't offloading it, but he's owning it and saying this is a part of who we are. Are collectively, that we have done this. And for some of us, that's really hard. You know, we live in a pretty individualistic culture. We kind of see ourselves as what I, my actions impact me. Um, but the truth is, like, the actions of those around us impact us too. And the actions of us impact those around us. And we can kind of have this collective thing that we kind of miss from time to time. We miss that in how it impacts our life. And Nehemiah is saying, I'm a part of this, I am benefiting from this, and I am a part of the neglect. Of this wall and so he what he doesn't do is he doesn't uh, blame somebody else and he doesn't just ask god to fix it and i think this is where nehemiah can diverge from a lot of us so nehemiah he sees something out in the world something that's not right and he says that's not right and it breaks his heart and he's moved to prayer over it which is already like a bit of a stretch for us a lot of times we'll see something say that's not right and then we'll turn and look away And the part that's even more tragic is when we see something that's not right and then we just get used to it. We just say, that's how the world is. That's just how the world is. We look around at people who are struggling to make ends meet. And we say, well, that's what you get. That's what you get. And we miss that sometimes we should have our hearts broken. Sometimes we should be moved to action. That poverty and heartbreak and exploitation shouldn't be the norm. It shouldn't be the norm. And so Nehemiah is heartbroken over it, and he doesn't just ask God to fix it. And he doesn't just say, hey God, would you get somebody else to go in there? He changes his posture. And it says this, starting in chapter 1, verse 11. It's going to be on the screen. It says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant. Lord, listen to my prayer. Uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering in your name. Give your servants success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then he add, tags this line on, I was the cupbearer to the king. So he's saying, I'm getting ready to go before the king. And again, I think that's a great thing to note about Nehemiah. He's not a prophet. He's not somebody that's got this anointing like King David where the uh, somebody came and poured oil on his head and said, you're set apart for great things. Just wait and see what God does from you. He's not somebody uh, that hears the call of the voice of God in the middle of the night. He's just a guy working a government job. You know, he's got a pretty good life, upper middle class. Things are going for him. But he knows that he's about to do something. He you know that he's about to go before the king, and he's asking God to grant favor in that conversation. And so he goes before the king, and the king responds to him, starting in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart, the text says. And I was very much afraid. And again, this is where things are a little different from us. We don't have kings that we go before that if we displease them, if they find us frustrating, they may say, hey, you need to get out of here. This meeting's over. In this context, you could also be killed. So it's kind of a raising up of a stakes to when you're meeting with your boss when you could be killed if you frustrate him if you try to bring something to his attention but he goes in and he lets himself show how he really feels he doesn't go in happy he doesn't go in hiding how he feels he goes in and lets himself his face show and the king says what is going on what are you feeling and why he goes on to say um but i said to the king may the king live forever why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and, his gate, and its gates are destroyed by fire? He couches it in terms the king is going to hear. He doesn't make promises about who God is. He doesn't say any of that. He, he really presents it in a way where the king will hear. In that culture, it doesn't matter who you are. You didn't have to believe in, in the God of Nehemiah. You all want to respect those in authority. And you want to respect those who came before you. You want to respect your ancestors. And that's really the, term, the way Nehemiah phrases it, is let me present this in a way where the king is going to hear. And the king says, well, what do you want? Why are you telling this to me? What do you, what do you want with that? And Nehemiah asks, um, it, says, it, says, it says, first he prays. He says, I pray to the God of heaven and then answer the king. If it, if it pleases the king, your servant, If your servant has found favor in his sight, let me return to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. He's asking to let him go back to Jerusalem. So, you know what he doesn't pray for? He He doesn't pray, God, tonight, miraculously put up a wall. Show these people who you really are. He's not praying for a miracle, he's praying for an opportunity. And that's what we need to do, I think. Instead of just praying for a miracle, praying for somebody else to fix it, we need to be praying for an opportunity, for a moment, for a chance to do what God has called us to do. Looking and around at the things in the world that exist and finding a chance. He doesn't say, God, fix that wall. He's saying, God, give me an opportunity to build that wall. You know, for us, we can pray, God, give me good Christian kids. Help my kids to grow into the men and women that you've called them to be. And say, he's saying, God, give me an opportunity to show my kids. He's not saying, God, give me a better job. He's saying, God, give me an opportunity at work. He's not saying, God, give me a better spouse or a better marriage, even though sometimes we want to pray that, especially when they make terrible jokes in public. But he's saying, God, give me an opportunity to show love, to show Christ in my relationship. And it's such a different shift. And again, Nehemiah, when he goes back, he is part of the fourth group of people to go back. The fourth group of people. People who've gone back with money and resources. But they got probably caught up in their own thing. They went back and helped get the temple going a little bit. They went back and built their businesses, built their homes, you know, taking care of their family, their kids. You know, I've got to take care of me and mine. Things aren't the best out here. And that's a lot of our natural reaction. When we look around at the world today, when we see things that make us anxious, when we see things that make us nervous, our response is, let me take care of mine first. Instead of praying for an opportunity Instead of looking and seeing what would God have me to do, instead of saying how can I help b- build this city up, we're looking for opportunities to build our business up, and it's easy for that to happen. Um, it's easy for us to really struggle with that. I was talking one time with a missionary, who uh, husband and wife had gone to Afghanistan. Um, and we're were preaching the gospel there. And ultimately, the husband was killed by the Taliban um, in, in that. And the kids and wives were held hostage as a part of that, and they eventually uh, were released and able to come back to the States. Um, and I remember listening to this lady talk and talking with people afterwards, and the number of people in our group who just could not believe, just could not believe, why would you do that? Why would you go there to those people And failing to see that it was an opportunity to preach the gospel. And it was an opportunity to follow Christ. And the wife, she said, I would do nothing different. She's heartbroken at what happened. But I would do nothing different because we got to share the gospel in places that aren't always there. And so my question is, what are you waiting for? What are you holding on to? Are you waiting that you're hoping to stumble in to a purpose or into an idea that's going to help you give clarity to what's next? Um, there's this lady named Liz Bohannon. She started uh, an ethical fashion brand out of Uganda called Seco Designs. Um, she's got a great little book called Beginner's Pluck. If you haven't read it, it's totally worth your time. You should jot that down on the margins. Um, but she talks about you will never find purpose at work. You will never find purpose at work. You bring your purpose to your work. And so many of us, we're just desperate to have somebody else hand it to us. We're desperate to have somebody else help us know what to do when it's our job to know what we're made for, what you are made for. And I don't know what, what makes you tick. I don't know where your heart is. I don't know what gets you up in the morning, what gets you excited. But, It's finding those things and capitalizing on them. It's finding those things that God put in you at your core and helping you then to thrive. Um, Because at the end of the day, nobody is going to make you do the things that matter most. Nobody is going to make you do the things that matter most. The things that leave an impact, that leave a legacy. Nobody is going to make you do that. I got to do a funeral for a friend of mine a couple weeks ago. Um, he uh, he was older. It was something that uh, he kind of knew it was coming. The last time I saw him, one of the last times I saw him in the hospital, he said, "Hey, when it comes time to put me away, will you do it?" I said, "Yes, yes, I will, Warren." Warren's life was pretty remarkable. I grew up dirt poor. Uh, grew up uh, in a broken home, uh, grew up uh, without running water inside, grew up wearing uh, flower sack shirts, which some of us are like, that really was a thing? It really was a thing? Uh, That's the life that he lived? Uh, And yet he was so excited about who Jesus was and so excited to talk about it. And it was the kind of thing that motivated most of his life. Um, it was the kind of thing that he regretted, even in his later life. He has built this very successful business, um, you know, lots and lots of money in the bank. Uh, and yet, the thing that he said, I wish I had, I wish I would have done, is I wish I could have gone to Bible college like you did. I'm like, Warren, I don't, I don't know that that's the most important thing. He's like, man, to know and to be able to talk to people about Jesus better, that's what would have made a big difference for me. Because it's what motivated him. It's what excited him. It's what gave him purpose. Not money in the bank. Not resources. Not proving his dad wrong. And just because you chase after something, just because you pursue something, just because you let your passion help to decide where your next step is going to be, it doesn't always mean that it works out. It doesn't always mean that God's going to come along and bless you. It doesn't always mean that God's going to come along and bless the things that you put the time into. But there's this proverb that my brother had shared with me that just has struck with me. Um, And it's this idea that not everybody who chases a zebra catches it. But everybody who catches a zebra chased it. And it's this idea that you have got to take the initiative. Nobody's going to make you. Nobody's going to push you. Nobody's going to come in and say, you have to do this and it's going to change your life. Nobody's going to tell you that you have to make that phone call to apologize. Nobody's going to tell you that you need to mend these relationships with family, with friends, uh, things from 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Nobody's going to make you do that. You are the one who has to take action on that. You are the one who needs to be praying for that opportunity and not trusting there's going to be some kind of miraculous situation that's going to take things forward. When a kid is standing on the side of the pool, waiting to jump in, hoping things are going to get better, the moment they jump, everything gets easier. Everything gets easier. And by the fourth or fifth time that they've jumped, by the fourth or fifth time that they've taken a next step, all of a sudden... There's this boldness that begins to grow in them. Um, There's this boldness that begins to change who they are. And I want to tell you that that's available to you even now. Even now, that as you take action, as you move forward in your relationship with God, as you move forward in the opportunities he puts before you, that boldness will continue to grow. That you can be the kind of person that goes and helps to build the wall Nehemiah wasn't a construction worker, he wasn't a contractor, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest, he was just somebody who saw something that broke his heart and broke God's heart, and he took action on it today. So my question for you is, what is your next step, and what does that look like? If you don't know, if you're genuinely somebody who's like, I don't know what that looks like for me, I don't know what that means for me, um, I'd be happy to talk with you. Chad's also around. He is dynamite to talk to in that kind of context. He asks great questions and would help you kind of think through, especially if it's in your spiritual life, if you're like, I just feel stuck, I feel anxious, I feel afraid, I'm not sure what to do. Uh, Reach out to him via Facebook. He's pretty responsive. Um, If you want somebody just to talk to, uh, I'd be happy to go grab coffee with you uh, and just talk about what does it look like for your next step? What does that look like for you? I'm sure there are people around you in this room in your life who would love to have those conversations with you. But don't sit on the side of the pool. Don't be afraid. Instead of just waiting for a miracle to show up, look for the opportunity that God puts before you. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we as we sing and reflect on what you would call us to, would you give us the courage to jump? The courage to jump into that next step. I don't know what it is, folks in this room. I know what mine is. And I know the great excuses I have for why I haven't done it. But God, I know that you are also there, waiting, and watching, that you are a God that has come alongside your people time and time again and provide insight and guidance and used your love for us to shape what you've called us to, to shape us into the kind of people that we don't have to have all the right skill set, the perfect qualifications. Instead, we just have to take action to move forward. God, I want to pray particularly for the folks in this room who their next step is that hard apology that's been hanging with them for years. And God, they've not apologized because they don't know how it's gonna go. They don't know how the other person's gonna receive it. God, would you help them to have the courage to take action, even if it's a hard conversation, even if it doesn't go the way they want and it doesn't bring about restoration. Would you work in their heart to have the courage to jump, to make the phone call, to send the email, to start the conversation, to apologize—it may not bring about restitution or reconciliation, but it will begin the healing process. Got to pray for those who—it's um, a work thing for them. It is so anxiety-producing to have to take a jump and to move on to the thing you've called us to. But would you give us courage? to respond to that well. Courage to take those risks. Courage to have those hard conversations. God, would you help us to have the clarity of purpose that only comes from you. That we would take that into our jobs and our relationships and into the world at large. That we would stop looking for some miraculous thing to come in. Instead, see who you've made us to be from the beginning. See who you have called us to be and lean into that. It's in the name of our King, the one who died, buried, and was raised to new life to invite us into relationship with you that we pray.